Hey, I want to welcome you to uh, Answering the Tough Ones, uh, equipping, equipping class. My name is Nathan Wagnon. I serve uh, on the equipping team here at Watermark, and I'll be one of the instructors for the uh, six weeks we have here. I'm not teaching tonight. Tonight, that privilege belongs to Dr. Ray Bolin, who's going to be uh, answering the question, what is truth? So I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview about what we're, the, uh, the uh, questions that we're going to answer over the next six weeks. They're up on the projector. So tonight we're going to tackle what is truth, and uh, Ray's going to uh, dive, in, dive into that uh, subject and take us through it. And then next week we're going to cover, is scripture trustworthy? That's the second um, question that, that uh, we'll, we'll try to answer and give you, uh, really equip you to, to uh, answer that one in the public square. And then week three is why is there evil in the world? So dealing with the problem of evil um, week four is, is God sovereign in salvation? Week five, does science contradict the Bible? And, and uh, Dr. Bowen will be back to answer that question for us. And then the last week, I'll, um, I'll be up again uh, to talk about the other world religions, how is Christianity distinctive from them, and why do we believe that Christianity is the, uh, the only true worldview that, that's out there in the world today. So that's what this class is going to look like. We're excited to have you guys here. And I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then Ray's going to... Take the reins and ride. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to, um, to come into this place in, in safety and security to be able to learn about um, your truth. And I pray that all of these people, all of us would be not only equipped to answer these tough questions, but that with grace and truth we would engage um, the world that we live in, um, that the people around us would be transformed um, into your likeness and that for your glory. We just love you and give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. And uh, I am Ray Bolin, and I serve uh, with Probe Ministries. Uh, Blake wants to let me know, let you know a little bit about that. Uh, Probe is a worldview and apologetics ministry. And uh, you can go to probe.org, and you'll find literally hundreds, even a couple thousand of thousands of articles, uh, answers to questions, answers to email, uh, on all sorts of topics dealing with worldview, answering questions about the Bible, about, our, about Christianity. There is an uh, article that covers some of the book I'll be talking much about tonight, Total Truth, that I wrote uh, when the book first came out back in 2004. And the book I'm mentioning is this one, Total Truth. Um, If this book is not on your bookshelf, I would highly recommend that it get there soon and that you make a real project about digesting what Nancy Piercy has to say. And again, I'll be introducing that concept to you today. What do we mean by total truth? And as you can see, um, I'll come back on week five. Does science contradict the Bible? But you may not really even need to come. I only have one slide. Just says no. So, oh, you're going to probably want me to do more than that, huh? Okay. Um, but I'm glad to see you here. I'm glad we've got over 100 people signed up for this class. Um, this question, what is truth, is very much uh, in discussion today. In fact, you, I'm going to point out to you a number of individuals uh, in our culture, and this concept and idea has filtered down to to just about everybody, and that is that there is no such thing as truth as we used to understand it. 
And so Nancy Piercy's book is a response to that idea. And if we just look at it briefly, you're all familiar with this conversation from the Gospel of John. Pilate's talking to Jesus at his trial. He says, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And of course, Pilate's enigmatic response is, what is truth? Well, we're going to be talking about that tonight because that's a question, as I mentioned earlier, largely today there are lots of people walking down the streets that would ask that very question. Because they don't know what truth is. They don't know if truth even exists. And I'll bring it up a little bit later, but you've probably heard somebody say, or somewhere in the culture, or in, a, in an article, on TV, news program, whatever, um, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. When somebody says that, what they mean by true is something new and different. It's really only come about in the late 19th and into the 20th century and now has filtered down to the 21st century where it's basically just a part of the culture. Richard Rorty, philosopher from University of Virginia, basically a postmodern philosopher, he said truth is, not, is made, not found. Individuals get to decide for themselves what truth is. He went on to say, keeping faith with Darwin means that our beliefs and convictions arise by random variations in the brain, just like Darwin's random variations in nature. Truth is just due to chemistry in your head. Your brain really is nothing more, as I'll introduce here a little bit, it's just nothing more than a meat computer. The laws of physics with the chemicals in your brain, that's what decides what you do, what you don't do, what you believe, what you don't believe, and there's no reason to trust any of it. It's just physics. Truth is simply what helps you get ahead in the struggle for existence. And again, how each person defines what that truth is today is really up to you. Jerry Coyne is an evolutionary biologist from the University of Chicago. He is one of the new atheists, if you will, and he's using his, his position as a well-known, well-respected evolutionary biologist to say basically that Darwin does away with any concept of truth. And he had an uh, article recently, about two years ago, uh, in the USA Today online, it was a column he apparently was invited to write, and it was about free will, basically. And one of his conclusions from the article basically says this, the ineluctable scientific conclusion. Now, get, look what he said. He said scientific conclusion. What do you think? Why does he call it scientific conclusion, do you think? It sounds good, but what he really means by that is this is real. Because I say it's scientific, then there is no disputing this. The scientific conclusion is that although we feel that we're characters in the play of our lives, rewriting our parts as we go along, in reality, we're puppets performing scripted parts written by the laws of physics. Basically, in the article, he calls your bra our brain a meat computer. Really all it is. It's just physics. It's just brain chemistry. But he faces the issue 
And what you'll see repeatedly is that people who say these kinds of things really can't live that way. And Coyne demonstrates it himself. So he said, so if we don't have free will, if it's just automatically determined by brain chemistry, what can we do? One possibility, he says, is to give in to a despairing nihilism and just stop doing anything. Ah, but that's impossible, he says. For our feeling, it's a feeling, (laughs) our feeling of personal agency is so overwhelming that we have no choice but to pretend that we do choose and get on with our lives. Doesn't that just make you want to get up in the morning and just get out? I get to pretend today that all my decisions are meaningful. But, uh, well, they're not. But he says we're forced to. The chemistry forces you to pretend that your choices matter. That's where you end up coming to with this type of worldview conclusion about truth. Almost everybody who talks about this end up saying and admitting carefully in the article, in the book, somewhere, but you know, you just really can't live this way. Wait a minute. If you're telling me that this is just the way it is and science tells us that, but yet everything in my being cries out that this can't be right and I have to live my life as if this reality isn't real, I think something's wrong with the worldview. (laughs) If it can't match reality, if it can't match the world we live in, if it can't match how we've lived our lives, then you've got to ask the question, something's dramatically wrong here. Okay. And I said earlier, you might have heard this phrase, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. We find this in the culture today for things like premarital sex. The culture is very willing to allow, if, if, if you're opposed to that, well, that's, that's good for you. But don't tell me I can't do that. Even the idea that God exists. People say, well, you know, I'm glad you found something that works for you. You believe in God, that's great. But that, that doesn't work for me, so... It's just one option of a myriad of choices that at the bottom don't mean anything anyway. So if you choose to believe in God and you choose to believe that God is real and he determines truth, well, that's great. Just don't try to tell me that you're right and I'm wrong because it's just a choice. Abortion, we find that as well um, in the culture today. Well, you might personally think that abortion is morally wrong. But that's fine for you. Don't try to impose your morality on me. Don't shove your morality down my throat. I was one time speaking on a university campus, and I was addressing this issue of abortion uh, in a dormitory open area. And one young lady brought this very idea up, and she says, yeah, well, I, I, that's fine if you believe that way, but don't, you, don't come here forcing it on me or tell me that's the way all of us ought to think. I said, no, well, oh, wait a minute. Let me, let me help explain something to you. If I'm truly convinced that abortion is murder, 
do you really expect me to just move off to the sidelines and just let everybody go about you know, murdering their babies with, with no interference? And she didn't have a response to that. If I really believe this to be true, then even the culture can't argue too well that I don't have a right to say this and actually try to stop others from murdering their baby. Jesus rose from the dead is another one. Well, again, you, you might choose to believe that. You might, you might think that's true. But I don't. Um, cheating, high school, college, even medical school today. Cheating is rampant wherever you go. Uh, we had access to a couple of uh, young youth group leaders at a small church out here in North Texas, out in the country. And uh, they reported that they actually asked their small group of teenagers, about a dozen, 15 or so, um, surprised I could get an answer, but how many of you cheat in school? Every single one said they did. And why? Because everybody else says it's the only way to keep up. So you judge whether this is okay based upon what everybody else is saying, and it's no longer just, is this real? Is this actually true? Is this what you really think? Even medical school. um, Got a good friend who, uh, one of her adoptive sons is currently in medical school. He's probably in one of his uh, internships at the moment, but back when he was in medical school, he was quite aware, and so is everybody else, that almost every one of the top medical students were cheating. They brought this to the attention of the head of the medical school, and, or at least someone in charge of this sort of thing, and the basic response they got was, well, we can't afford to do anything about that because these are our best students. And why are they your best students? <laughs> because they're cheating. How many of you want the surgeon operating you, operating you as the guy who cheated in medical school? But that's not going to be on his resume. That's not going to be anywhere to be found out. He's just going to be listed. This is my place in the class. This is my internships. And, you know, I'm, I'm a good doctor. So we're facing this in a very real and, I say, dangerous way in our culture today, trying to understand what is true And how do we determine what is true? We have far too many voices in our universities who are saying to our young people, and I'll be giving you some examples that Nancy Piercy points out, um, that it's really up to you what you think truth is. Don't worry about it. So, Told Truth by Nancy Piercy, and I'll be uh, highlighting that word truth in numerous times during our talk tonight. And I'm just going to say it's the most significant book I've read still in the 21st century. And again, that's why I would highly recommend it to you. Great writing, insightful analysis, engaging examples, exhaustively researched. Uh, The appendix with all the citations and everything is just volumes. And she annotates that. She has notes along with some of the actual references in there. But I'm going to tell you that most Christians won't read it. Um, there's some tough vocabulary in this book. (laughs) Subtitle, Liberating Christianity from its Cultural Captivity. Yeah, what does that mean? Um, 
I'm afraid that Christians, like most other people in our culture today, were so immersed in the easy communication of media, whether it's movies, whether it's television, whether it's television programs, whether it's the news programs we choose to watch, you're not getting much that's really in-depth. We have been um, lulled to sleep, if you will, to think in a shallow mentality. We don't really dig deeply into things. And when we come across something like total truth, we can get 10 pages, 20 pages, maybe 100 pages in, but man, I'm tired. This, this is work reading this. And we've, gone, we've become mentally lazy. I'm not saying that about you individually. I'm saying that as a culture, as a whole in, in America, in our churches as well, just in general. Um, and it's time we needed to stop and do something about that and not allow our, our minds to just <laughs> rot away, if you will. They need to be exercised. And uh, this book will get you started. Again, like I say, she's a great writer. She uses terrific examples. She engages you all the way through, and she'll shock you a few times, if not more than that. Okay, so she quotes Francis Schaeffer, her mentor, she was at Labrie in the early to mid-70s, studied under him when she was uh, studying violin over in Europe. He was at, speaking at Notre Dame, which is unusual for a Protestant apologist, philosopher, evangelist. And he told the, the Notre Dame students, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. He points out that distinction because that's exactly what our culture is trying to tell us today. That your Christianity might hold some truths about just religious ideas. And it might, again, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. We go through that conversation all over again, but it's, it's just about religion. But Schaefer said, oh, no, no, no. Christianity is truth with a capital T, and it covers all of reality. He went on to say biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth. That's where she got the title of the book from. And then living in the light of that total truth. So if you don't understand that Christianity is complete truth about all aspects of life and you're not actively engaged in working to apply what you believe and what it means in every aspect of your life well you're not going to be able to live in the light of that truth you're missing out you're missing out on a great deal I've been with Pro Ministries for almost 39 years now and it's been the greatest adventure of my life um when I first arrived at Probe in 1975, I started having lunch at, you know, in the lunch table and all these other uh, very experienced uh, men around me just chatting over the lunch table. And, and my, I was, really? Is that, wow, I, I never heard that before. And I got an education just eating lunch. Um, in my brain, it took a couple decades for me to really be immersed in this. And I just, I'm excited to be here tonight 
to relate to you about Nancy's book, Total Truth, and hopefully to encourage you to read it, because this is the foundation. If you don't truly accept Christianity as total truth, then don't come next week. Don't bother showing up. Because talking about the trustworthiness of the scriptures, talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, talking about science and the Bible, it won't really mean anything because it's just kind of true for you and it doesn't matter out there in the culture. What I'm saying is that this is the truth. And in the light of the scriptures, we can understand all of what's going on around us from God's perspective. And that's the perspective that matters. Not yours. God's perspective, because he, if he is the creator of all things, then he has designed not only the universe and living things, but everything around us is a result of how he put things together. And you're not really going to understand what's going on in this world, in this culture, in this, in this nation, and in your family, in this city, unless you're engaging with truth in this sort of way. She goes on to say, she quotes uh, Charles Spurgeon here, although it's, it's a tough quote to try to nail down, honestly. <laughs> the gospel, he said, is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. And for too many of us, the cage is, exists in our own minds. And we're not allowing the gospel to go beyond our own intimate life with the scriptures or reading along with the journey or in our community group. And it doesn't extend anywhere beyond that. The gospel is a cage lion. And I'm challenging every one of you here tonight to be willing to let it out of the cage. There's real power involved in the gospel once you finally understand and begin to apply in your life that this is truth. She says, today the cage is our accommodation to what she calls the secular sacred split that reduces Christianity to a matter of private belief. And I'll relate further about what she means by that, this sacred secular split, but for now it's a matter of that when you're outside of the church environment, Different sorts of principles apply. You don't include your faith in those conversations or in your job or maybe in your home. That's okay because that's personal and private. But when you're out in the marketplace, oh, no, no, no. That faith is personal to you. This is the secular world right now, and you're beginning to talk about sacred things, and those, those don't belong out here. Some of you may be aware of this, but 70% of high school grads involved in church youth groups will take at least one year away from the church in college. The majority of those will not come back. Those who do end up coming back once they're married, they're having children. I received a religious education when I was a child. I kind of liked that. I want my kids to experience the same thing. They're not necessarily coming back because it's true. It's a cultural thing. And they're not really going to be effective leaders in the church if that's the primary reason they're returning. Nancy Piercy, in the book, she she gives an example where um, a professor at a Christian college was speaking to a, a Bible class and uh, he had a, one of those flip blackboards, you know, and on one side of the blackboard he had a brain drawn on there 
And he said, the brain, this is what we use for science. This is what tells us what, what works in science. And he flipped the blackboard over, and he had a heart dr- drawn on there. And the heart, well, that, that's what we use for religion. So your heart applies to your faith, but your brain only applies to science and the things out in the secular culture. And they said the two have as little to do with each other as the two different sides of the blackboard. Main reason why so many of our kids are leaving once they get to college or to university is because that's what they've come to accept for whatever reason, whether it's the life in the church, whether it's the life in the home, but they've, come, they've already separated their sacred life from their secular life, and at the university, everything's secular. So if I'm really going to get a job, I, I have to apply the secular way of doing things, and, and the sacred just loses out. And they begin to see that, you know, I, I don't really need this. This isn't helping me in my life pursuit. If all we give them is a heart religion, it will not be strong enough to counter the lure of attractive but dangerous ideas. There are a lot of attractive ideas out there. Don't, uh, don't fool yourself about that. But they're also dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Now, what I'm going to show you next is from a presentation I saw from a group called Youth Transition Network who were focusing on this very idea that so many high school kids were leaving the faith once they got to college. Um, and they've got a great ministry going on, and they've got a program involved in churches, helping parents and students connect better. And um, by the way, it, it, uh, one thing I'll add before I look at that slide um, is that Probe did a survey, uh, had Barna Group do a survey for us of 18 to 40-year-old born-again Christians uh, on the web. It was a, one of their first uh, uh, web-based uh, surveys. And one of the things we found out is one of the questions we asked was, um, who was the most influential person in developing your faith? Now, basically, about 50, 65% said it was a family member. More, over a third of them said it was mom. A third of that said it was dad. Some said a grandma. Grandpa was, you know, he was, he was 1%. <laughs> Um, men, we, we are not communicating to our kids very well. Almost everybody's saying it was a female in my life, not a male, who communicated faith to me. But when you ask about pastor, 7%. Youth group, 4%. The transmission of faith occurs in the home. And I think my generation, the boomers, primarily abrogated that duty to the church. But in reality, our kids were watching us every single moment. Is this faith you say you have, is it making a difference in how you live your life? Or are you just like the neighbor next door who never darkens the door of a church? And if they're not seeing a difference, why bother? I've got a lot of restrictions in this church life here, and if, if it doesn't make any difference to you, then why, why, why go? If it's not really true... In the sense that truth matters and it influences how I live, then why should I bother going through all of this? Now, what this slide is about is the students, about 800 different students, and these were done in personal interviews basically, um, were asked, What are the expectations of a good Christian? 
What's the expectations of a good Christian? I'm going to read through this list rapid fire just to get through it, okay? No sex, no secular music, no fun, no alcohol, no hats, no profanity, no bad attitudes, no worldly privileges. Go to church every week, be perfect, be the perfect child, be a virgin, be wholly devoted to God, be a role model, be active in church, be righteous, be self-controlled, be a goody two-shoes, have all the spiritual answers, have unwavering faith, have strong faith, have no spiritual lows, have no doubts, have no problems, always be positive, always be in a good mood, always be happy, always imitate Christ, always have good morals, always respect your elders, always respect your parents, wear proper clothing, constant obedience, read your Bible, daily quiet time, daily prayer time, defend your faith, evangelism or share your faith, know the whole Bible, Follow the Ten Commandments, get along with everyone, do not talk back, never have a bad attitude, dress modestly, do not expose yourself to sin or sinful environments, do not fail. If that's what you thought Christianity was or being a good Christian was, would you want to keep going? Now these are young people. And I'm sure that that's not all that they were taught But that's what they experienced. There were real negative repercussions if they did if they did one of the no's and you got along okay if you did one of the do's. But that that list just exhausts me. I can't live that way. But what parents sometimes are communicating is that if that's what they expect of the kids, well then see, because that's the way I'm living. Moms and dads, especially if you've got younger kids, begin to learn now how to say, I'm sorry, to your kids. Learn to say, you're right, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, Man, one of the things in that last slide, what Nancy pointed out was, young people needed a place to address their doubts. Every young person's going to have them. We live in a culture that breeds doubts about truth. They're hearing it in their schools. They're hearing it in their peer groups. They're going to have doubts. And every young person who's going to make that transition from high school to a solid believer on the other end of college is going to have to go through a transition where the faith they have is no longer just the faith of mom and dad, but it's theirs. And they've, they've taken it as their own because they're convinced it's true. And part of what the point of this whole class is, is to help you, first of all, become convinced that this is true. (laughs) We all have our own doubts, we all have our own concerns, and there's nothing wrong with that. I understand that. I get it. And we're addressing all the basic areas. It's answering the tough ones. And we're dealing with the major questions people have about Christianity. So I'm so glad to see that this room is full. But don't let your kids grow up to believe this. Now, the heart versus the brain. All those kids who just spoke on there, they they have a heart religion. (laughs) They don't have a a brain that deals with their faith. Uh, We talked about the sacred-secular split. In many people's minds today, if, if you believe something sacred, well, that's not rational on the very bottom here. Only the secular realm realm deals with rationality. Your values are your personal choice, where the facts of science, well, those are binding. 
That applies to everybody. They won't use the word true, because I could get them in trouble. Listen, this, this is real. Science has demonstrated this is just the way things are. You, might, you have private things that, you, that are personal to you, but you don't always bring those out into the public sector because that's where science, that's the world of economics, of public policy, of government, of education, your, your uh, public, your private beliefs, your values, your sacred ideas have no place in the realm of the public, in the realm of facts, in the secular world. You know, I'm, I'm quite convinced that Todd Wagner has one of these things that just is perfectly molded to his ear, you know, and it, and it just never moves. I don't, I don't, I don't have that privilege. <laughs> so I'll fiddle with it every once in a while. Okay. She talks about the fact-value grid. She says it instantly dissolves away the objective content of anything we say as Christians is what she means. If you're buying into that, that fact value, what you, what you say as a Christian is a value. And it's just a personal preference on your part. She says that we will not be successful in introducing the content of our belief into the public discussion unless we first find ways to get past the gatekeeper. And that's part of what the book is helping you to do. Not just helping you understand it, but how do you get past the gatekeeper? A lot of the information, a lot of what we're going to be training you in over these six weeks is also going to be giving you helpful hints about how to get past the gatekeeper. Because they're going to want to shove you into that private, value, sacred realm and leave you there. Christopher Reeve um, the initial Superman in the movies, um, when he was, became paralyzed, he was a great advocate for embryonic stem cell research. And myself included and others uh, from the Christian perspective were arguing against the use of embryonic stem cells because he had to kill the embryo in order to get them. And he was frustrated by that because he, along with many others, just saw great promise in the use of these embryonic stem cells. And why are these people trying to stop that? He said, when matters of public, he's speaking to Yale University, when matters of public policy are debated, no religions should have a seat at the table. Again, he's reflecting that sacred secular split. The two don't have anything to do with each other. If it's public policy, your faith doesn't belong here. And if that's all you're going to talk about, if that's from which you're discussing things, then you shouldn't even be at the table. She says a worldview, and that's what probe represents. We teach worldview all the time. The arcs of probe.org are reflecting a Christian worldview or analyzing other worldviews. She says, a worldview is like a mental map that tells us how to navigate the world effectively. It's the imprint of God's objective truth on our inner life. A mental map. Sometimes, I think later on, it's referred to sometimes as a, as a pair of glasses. Um, you, you've got some glasses on here, right? How do you think we'd both do if we just exchanged our glasses? How well would we see? You're shaking your head. You don't think that's going to work? Why not? They're glasses. They even look kind of alike. What? Different strengths. Different strengths. Oh, different prescription. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't work too well. Well, the same thing applies to a worldview. 
If you don't have the correct worldview, you're not going to see the world around you as it is. You're not going to see ideas as it is. You're not going to understand people as God created them to be. Things are going to be distorted. Yeah, you'll get some things right. I mean, I've got the, the verifocal lenses here, right? You know, I've got to look this way to look far and look down hard to look real close. And, and I've got all sorts of intermediate stuff there, no lines, all that kind of stuff. But... Um, so I, I can see some things right if I put on just a pair. My driving glasses are just for distance. Excuse me. I get excited and then I hit things. So. Um, but I usually have to take my glasses off of them if I'm in the car and I have to read something. So when I have those on. I can see distance fine with that. Close up, yeah, that ain't going to work so well. So every worldview gets a few things right. It makes good observations about a few things, but in terms of total reality, as Francis Schaeffer spoke of, no. You've got to have the right pair of glasses. You've got to have the correct worldview to understand things effectively. One way, she says, we acknowledge his lordship is by interpreting every aspect of creation in the light of his truth. Doggone it, there's that word again. (laughs) Truth. God's word becomes a set of glasses offering a new perspective on all our thoughts and actions. When I teach uh, worldview to young people, um, I didn't want to bring them tonight because we just don't really have the time. But we have some special glasses, goggles actually, Uh, They're called drunk busters. And when you put these massive goggles on, your vision approximates that of someone who's had too much to drink. And trust me, you see double. The distances aren't quite right. And I just, I bring a tennis ball. And I just, they, they they can't see it, they can't catch it. And I, have, I set up a, an obstacle course, and I just have them try to walk the... Just cheers. <laughs> and they're banging into this, banging into that, you know, and they're laughing and having fun. I said, well, yeah, the wrong worldview is like that. The wrong worldview can be dangerous. It can be downright dangerous. In order to have the mind of Christ, we must be willing to be crucified with Christ. And part of that, what that means, is that the mind unless it's under the lordship of Christ, is going to steer you in the wrong directions. It's got the beer goggles on. You're not going to see things correctly. You're not going to see things properly. And you can't always trust what your mind, apart from Christ, is telling you, or what your friends are telling you. She breaks things down into three important categories. Basically, every worldview talks about creation, fall, and redemption. I don't see a clock in here, Nathan. Is there, is there a way for me to know? I don't have a watch. What time is it, by the way? 7.37. 7.30? Oh, I'm in good shape. Okay. <laughs> Every worldview has some expression of all three of these concepts. Obviously, with the Christian worldview, we're, at, we're trying to answer where do we come from, what went wrong, and how do we fix it. If you think of Marxism or communism... They, of course, accepted a Darwinian view of evolution, that things were all just natural process. We live in a materialist universe. There is no spiritual. There is no God. Nothing like that. We just, people are just animals. When you ask them what went wrong, they would simply say, well, 
private property is what went wrong. When people were allowed to own their own property, they got possessive of it, and they would dispute it, and they would persecute others who didn't have it, and they just tried to keep as much to themselves as they could. Well, what's the solution? What's the redemption? Well, you do away with all private property. Uh, you, you, you have the commune concept. Everybody works on a public farm or in a public factory, and everybody gets paid the same. Everybody gets the basic things in order to live with. And Well, why didn't that work? Sounds good. Well, because of the human heart, <laughs> there's always going to be people who are, have to be in charge, and those who were in charge kept sneaking more for themselves because, well, they're, they're people. They have a fallen nature. What, what went wrong in the Christian worldview is, is the fall of Adam and Eve. It's sin. And unless you account for sin in some way, in your worldview, you're not going to understand people very well. You're, you're going to get it wrong. In our prison system, for the most part, we've adopted a rather materialist view. Okay, And this whole idea of rehabilitation... The idea behind that is if people who are doing the wrong thing and they're getting caught and they're stealing things that are burning things or people are they're raping or whatever it is they're doing, whatever they got sent to jail for, they just need to be re-educated. They just have the wrong ideas in their head. We just need to train them with the right ideas and people will be fine. Well, we've learned that doesn't work. The recidivism rate or the rate of return of prisoners is somewhere around 60-70%. Most of them don't relearn because the human heart has not been dealt with. The nature of sin has not been dealt with. That's a part of the reality that they're all having to deal with, but for the most part, we don't. Redemption, obviously, for us is the death and and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which provides a means out of the predicament of sin. Nobody else really provides that. No other worldview provides such a thing. Almost every other worldview says... You are on your own. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing too well here. Let me see. I'm going to have to bend this a little bit more that way. Maybe that'll work. Okay, we'll try that. <laughs> um, every other worldview, every other world religion basically saying, you're on your own, you've got to do it yourself, figure it out. Basically, that's what you heard Jerry Coyne say. Well, somehow you've got to figure out a way to realize, okay, I don't have real choices. It's all chemistry in my brain, but I'm going to live that way anyway. But I just kind of, kind of ignore that. It's kind of like, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, don't pay any attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> don't pay any attention to the fact that your choices aren't real. Just live as if they are, and, and you'll be fine. So, chapter one, she calls Breaking Out of the Grid. She tells Sarah's story. Sarah was a young believer, fresh out of college, and uh, she was a member of a particular denomination, which I'm not going to mention. She does in the book, and you're free to (laughs) find out eventually. Um, She went to church. She was in Sunday school, and her degree was in social work. And she thought one of the things she really wanted to do was, was help women. So she she was a counselor for Planned Parenthood to help women through this minefield of making making the choice. And, of course, abortion was one of the choices, and she didn't have any objection to that. She didn't like abortion herself necessarily, but 
you know, that's what she was taught. That's what people have a right to. Women have to know all their options. And she felt she was doing the population of women in Alabama or Mississippi where she was, and she was just she was doing the right thing. Many of her colleagues also went to her church. They were in her, in her Sunday school class, and they, they were all involved in the same thing. She found, eventually, once she learned what abortion really was about, she learned the medical details of the abortion process. She realized she had to take apart her secular worldview plank by plank. And then begin painstakingly constructing a Christian worldview in its place. And it took a while. There are some things that we end up grabbing onto that form a good part of who we are and how we operate and suddenly we realize that that's not biblical truth anymore and I never knew that she said it was tough work breaking out of the secular sacred split Christianity is not just religious truth she realized it's total truth about everything We've had a woman living with us for some time, and uh, she's uh, one who's uh, come out of uh, the homosexual lifestyle, and um, I gave her total truth shortly after she was living with us for a couple of months, and she liked to read. She's academically minded, and, and she'd been a believer for, for several years now, and uh, was doing quite well with things. And when she started, re- that's the exact thing she came up with, and she came up to me and said, Christianity is really about everything. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that exciting? (laughs) It forms the grid. It forms the glasses. It it, it interprets everything about your life for you. And that's what it was meant to be. But our culture is trying to tell us something very, very different today. 1963, Harry Blaymeyers wrote a book called The Christian Mind. And one of his basic conclusions, and this is a quote, there is no longer a Christian mind, he said. He could already see it in the early 60s that the church was abandoning the idea that Christianity is truth across all of reality, and it was becoming compartmentalized into just a personal, private thing. He said, thinking Christianly means understanding that Christianity gives the truth about the whole of reality. That's really kind of a good definition for truth. Truth is what describes the way things really are. Truth is what describes the way things really are. Not just how they seem to you, but how they really are. And where are you going to find that kind of information? Ultimately, it's going to come out of not just verses of the Bible, but the whole perspective, what the Bible is trying to say, how it communicates to us about nature, about our fleshly nature, about redemption. That's where we're going to find truth about all of reality. It's, it's a perspective for interpreting every subject matter. Martin Marty, who is a sociologist and a commentator, basically said, says we are living in the first time in history where Christianity has been boxed into the private sphere and has largely stopped speaking to the public sphere. One of the things I love about 
this church and serving here at Watermark is how involved so many people and so many different ministries are in the community outside the doors. Because that's what helps communicate to the world around us that this is not just a private faith. This is not just for me personally. I believe that this is so true that I'm willing to go out there and minister to the people who, who just need help, who need to know about Jesus. And maybe it's going to take a while before I ever get to talk about Jesus, but I'm, I'm going to come alongside and live with those who are struggling in this culture. But too many of us, we inhabit separate worlds, navigating a sharp divide between our religious life and ordinary life. And that is a a challenge I just would like to give to you over the next several weeks when this course is in place, is that how much of a divide is there in your life between your religious life and your ordinary life? Where you work, do people even know you're a believer? As Todd likes to say sometimes, if, if it were suddenly a, a crime to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would people even know? Um, sometimes it's not going to be pleasant. <laughs> I was uh, involved in the recent uh, State Board of Education here in Texas and their review of textbooks, specifically in my case, biology textbooks for high school. And uh, I'm, I'm qualified. Uh, I've got a master's, PhD in biology, and I've done all that good stuff. And I've I've taught different kinds of things, different places. I'm full time with probe, but um, <clears throat> I was kind of outed by a group called Texas Freedom Network because the first part of the review process was done in your home virtually, and uh, I just did it privately, sent those off by email to the Texas Education Agency. But the last stage was done among a, physically in panels down in Austin, and I was with a group of three other people who were reviewing a certain set of textbooks and following up and completing the process. And in the room were people from this Texas Freedom Network, which is just kind of a secular watchdog group, and they started posting in their blogs that this arch-creationist fundamentalist Ray Bolin was reviewing biology textbooks. That wasn't the worst of it. I was called a pseudoscientist, a fraud, a liar. Yeah, yeah, it, it it gets bad. Um, And then to follow up, the Dallas Observer, um, did I just, it just fell off completely. Okay, Nathan, I'm just going to make this official. I want a lapel mic (laughs) in in four weeks. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, I am too male to do that. I'd have to do two things at once. And if I'm holding a microphone, either I forget to hold it close enough and it drops, or I'm so concerned with making sure it's up close enough I forget what I'm saying. So, I, yeah. <laughs> um, I did a two-hour interview with the reporter from the Dallas Observer. And uh, they published the article in which I was a major feature. It was a six-page online article, and I covered about two and a half to three pages of it talking about me. And basically, this reporter was just... He was completely perplexed. 
how could I have this much biology education and still not accept evolution? How is that even possible? He knows, quote, the truth, not call it the truth. He, he knows the science is what they'd say. But he doesn't, he doesn't accept it. Some of the other commenters who, of course, follow up in an article like that, uh, one of them just basically concluded, if he's, if he, this guy really understands it, and he's just got to be mentally imbalanced then. Because in their minds, he's got the secular knowledge. He's got the facts. He's got what's open and available to the public, but yet he allows his private values and sacred perspective to throw all that out the window and hold to his religious truths. Well, I don't like getting talked about like that. <laughs> Fortunately, one guy actually spoke up and said, well, yeah, I've actually met Ray Boland. He's a nice guy. Um, oh, what's that? Sorry. Sometimes you never know what's going to show up around here. Yeah, stop it. <laughs> um, he, I, he's wrong, but he's not mentally imbalanced. Well, uh, thanks for that. Well, I'd, I think, I think that was a compliment. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's not pleasant. Yeah. I think I might need some tape or something. I don't know. Some of our Christian schools, honestly, are not helping very much. The unspoken assumption, she says, often is that the only way to really serve God was in full-time Christian work. You gotta try this one. Oh, okay. I'm gonna change it out real quick. Okay. You think so? Yep. Well, that's working at least for you. <laughs> Looks good. Uh, yeah, that, that's beside the point. Let's <laughs> hope it works good. Um, again, you see this in a lot of young people. They get the impression that if they're really going to serve God, well, somehow they have to go into the pastorate or be a youth pastor or work for a mission organization. Or, and that's, that's a result of basically separating, that there's a sacred and a secular world. And if I'm going to serve God, I have to stay in the secular world. I can't serve God in the secular world, can I? I can only do that in the sacred world. Well, no. Uh, I, I, my training's in biology. I, every time I'm out in the world and seeing critters, as I like to say, I'm a critter guy, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm praising God. I don't separate that. So many times I was doing my doctoral work and somebody came from outside and was given the presentation of their research in molecular biology or cell biology or something and, and they're going through all these experiments they've done to try to indicate how this one little small portion of the cell works. It took them years. <laughs> and, I, and I'm just sitting there marveling at the intricacy and the beauty and the complexity of what God has put together. I said, God, you're amazing. None of my colleagues were reacting that way, but pulling it all together. 
She says, in many Christian schools, a typical strategy is to inject a few narrowly defined religious elements into the classroom, like prayer and Bible memorization, and then teach exactly the same things as the secular schools. Maybe in biology class, we'll put a a verse like, you know, Genesis 1-1, we'll put that on the blackboard, and in the beginning, God created, and that kind of integrates. No, <laughs> that's not. Do you do you see evidence of design in nature? I'll spend some time on that on week five. Um, do you see the hand of God in what He's made? If He is the Creator, just like any artist, you're going to be able to tell something about the Creator by by His work. What do we learn? Romans one twenty. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his divine power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so we are without excuse. Paul is simply saying, open your eyes and look at the world around you. Look at the stars. Look at, look at the bugs crawling in the grass. Look at the birds. Listen to them. It's all around you. There is a creator. There is a design. We know he's there. In this section, Pearson relates how many Christians in the sciences see no connection between their Christianity and their science. One was quoted as saying, quantum mechanics is like auto mechanics. It has nothing to do with my faith. How sad. Yeah, there's a lot of mechanistic aspects to quantum mechanics, and there's a lot of formulas, a lot of math, and all that sort of thing, but it's how God created things to be. And therefore, that is telling you something about the creator, about the God you serve, about the one who authored scripture, about the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus was the person of the Trinity through which everything was made. And he walked around here with us. (laughs) We know the creator was here. Basically, there is no such thing as religiously neutral knowledge. No such thing. And that's probably going to challenge some of you. Two plus two equals four. What's the religious value of that? God is a God of order. Every time you add two plus two, it's four. We can trust that. <laughs> we, it's not just by trial and error that we figure that way. That's the way things are. I once had a conversation with one of the professors at UTD and uh, he was talking about how so much of nature fits mathematically. And he was kind of, you know, awed by that, you know, in the sense of that, um, what a coincidence that our mathematics and how we devise things, we can actually use that to describe how nature operates. And I, and I, I said, well, you know, it's also possible that nature is mathematical in and of itself. And it was made that way. And he's, ah, I see what you're getting at. He knew I was a Christian. And <laughs> yeah, maybe the Creator made it that way on purpose. So that we would have a tool that we could use our minds to understand this world around us. That's, it was designed that way. And therefore, we get to be a part of what God has made. Well, She says, this is why Christians cannot complacently abandon so-called secular subject areas to non-believers. Just so long as they grant us some restricted sacred area, 
where we are free to sing hymns and read the Bible. Instead, we must identify and critique the dominant intellectual idols and then construct biblically-based alternatives. Every aspect of study, every field of knowledge fits under a Christian worldview, has a place, is a part of the greater whole. And part of our job as believers and those who are rightly related to the creator, we above all else should be able to help figure out how does this all fit together? It's a great task. It's what really brought scientists together in the first place. Without a Christian worldview that said that God is the creator, we know from the Psalms that God created in an orderly way, and we are created in his image, and therefore we are able to think in an orderly way, so perhaps we can approach this creation in an orderly way and help discover how it works. Modern science exists because of the Christian worldview. Not too many naturalistic scientists know that today. Now, this is going to get kind of scary for you. In Minnesota, teachers are instructed to be tolerant of multiple mathematical worldviews. In New Mexico, she says, I met a young man who had recently graduated from high school where a mathematics teacher had labeled him a bigot for thinking it was important to get the right answer. You see what has happened to truth. Even within the concept of mathematics, it touches everything. Once you abandon this concept of truth and you adopt a completely materialistic, naturalistic worldview, there is no truth anymore. And just because you can get an answer that seems right to you... (laughs) Well, maybe it's not right to the guy sitting next to you. And he gets a different answer. And you're both right. Isn't that great? It's a lot easier to grade that way, isn't it? (laughs) She says, schools now have classes where children construct their own spelling systems. It's called invented spelling. Well, good title. They make their own punctuation, grammar rules, their own math procedures. In one state, and even her references, she doesn't tell you what state this is. In one state, the history standards say that by high school, students should have a strong sense of how to reconstruct history. Because, you see, from the postmodern mindset, history is something that's constructed within a particular cultural view. And just because that's how you've come to see history probably doesn't have any relation as to what actually happened. In fact, we can't ever really know what really happened. And because of that, high school students should be encouraged to realize that how do I reconstruct history for myself? What truths do I want to see? What do I think happened? Because what I think happened is just as significant as some 70-year-old PhD in history. We all form our own truth. She says we must begin by being 
utterly convinced and take that seriously. She uses the word utterly because she's really wanting to pound this idea home. We must begin by being utterly convinced that there is a biblical perspective in everything, not just on spiritual matters. As she says, all truth is God's truth. If it's true, God is the one who's made it true. If you learn something that's true, it has its source in the Creator. As the church fathers used to say in the first four centuries of the church, and they urged Christians to plunder the Egyptians by appropriating the best of secular scholarship, showing how it actually fits best within a biblical worldview. I'm, uh, I, I just turned 60 this July, and I'm not done constructing my biblical worldview. <laughs> it is a lifelong process, and it's an adventure. Eh, some people would question, question me if I said it was fun. It's fun for me, but it is an adventure. There are new horizons almost everywhere you look. If you give it the opportunity, if you give God the opportunity, if you give truth the opportunity... Percy tells her own story on pages 51 to 56, and I really, I, you're going to really enjoy that. She went to Labrie, Switzerland as a college student. She was studying violin, and she went to Europe to study, and she'd heard about this place called Labrie, um, where Francis Schaeffer and his wife Edith and their family were ministering to young people who were really searching f- for what mattered. Why is all this stuff here? What, does anything really matter? And she said, here in the early 70s, it was the first time I had ever encountered Christians who actually answered my questions. If you have a middle school, high school student at home, they need to be free to ask their questions and just let's explore it together. Um, There have been things in my own life where I kind of wondered, okay, how in the world is this going to fit? This seems contradictory to what I expected to find. And and, And every time I've gone ahead and dived in and dug into it, I've never been disappointed. Sometimes as Christians, we don't want to dig into it because we're afraid of what we might learn. We're actually afraid that what I've been believing all these years, it might not be as solid as I thought it was. Well then, all the more reason to dig in. As Paul says in Corinthians about the resurrection, if Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead, we are still lost in our sins, and we are most to be pitied among men. Why? Because the history matters. The truth matters. If Jesus didn't really live and exist and do miracles and and healings and and didn't die on the cross and didn't rise from the dead, every one of us here is wasting our time. I don't want to waste my time. I, I, I want to be convinced it's true, and I am. But I've dug in, and I encourage all of you to do the same. She says, there is no need to avoid the secular world and hide out behind the walls of an evangelical subculture. Instead, Christians can appreciate works of art 
and culture as products of human creativity expressing the image of God. On the other hand, there is no danger of being naive or uncritical about false and dangerous messages embedded in the secular culture because a worldview gives the conceptual tools needed to analyze and critique them. Believers can apply a distinctly biblical perspective every time they pick up a newspaper, watch a movie, or read a book. No reason to have any fear. No reason to have any fear. Um, this book is a good beginning. And I would, there's act, the edition that's out now also has a, a, a small group study guide in it. So this would be a good thing to do as a part of a community group. Um, you might not be able to read a chapter a week. That's okay. Take as long as you need to. It's all right. Um, and I encourage you to read with a pencil or pen or marker in your hand. If you look at my book, there's something marked on almost every page. I got stars in the margin, things I want. Okay, I underline a lot of stuff, but when there's a star, I want to make sure I go back to that. She wrote a second book, Saving Leonardo, and the subtitle here is A Call to Resist the Secular Assault on Mind, Morals, and Meaning. She tells a story in here of a New York Times reporter at the time of, I think, the 2008 election. And uh, the the reporter heard that there was going to be a a youth rally of Christian youth there in New York City, and he decided to go and just kind of find out what that was all about. And uh, and in talking with the students, he found out that the vast majority of them were were pro-life. But then as he listened to them and watched them and how they interacted with various tables and sponsors and political things, the the candidates they supported were almost universally pro-choice. And the, and the writer thought, well, that, that seems to be a contradiction. And he asked him about it. Doesn't that bother you that you're so pro-life, but the candidates you're supporting are, are pro-choice? And so they said, well, yeah, a little bit, but it's their personal choice. You, you can't hold somebody's personal choice against them. <laughs> well, abortion is just wrong for me. <sighs> That's, that's, that's kind of tough sledding there. Even a secular reporter sees the contradiction in that. But our Christian young people didn't, didn't see any real problem with that. One of the things the Youth Transition Network has pointed out is that so many of our young people um, have learned really, as they say, how to live a double life. And they've, they've separated things so much that when they're in their family and church context, they know what to say, they know how to act, they know how to fit in. But when they're out with their secular friends, they're a completely different person. And if you would talk to them about it, they would say, oh, I don't, I don't see any problem with that. No, that's just, that's just life. It's just the way it is. And what we're seeing is that for many of them, it wasn't college that pulled them away from the faith. They were already drifting while they were still at home. And moving away to college, where now I get to make my own decisions, make my own friends, I get to follow this other way. Because this one, this, it, it, all those no's and do's, and I don't, I don't want that. 
So we see that within our own Christian culture, we have succumbed to the sacred-secular split. We just have. And unfortunately, I know my generation, as I said, the boomer generation, I've got two sons who are 33 and 31. Um, At times, they've done okay, and sometimes not so much. (laughs) Um, But I think we did. We left too much to the role of the church, and rather than focusing on what was going on at home. So truth, what is truth? It's a statement about reality. It describes what is. And unfortunately, too much of our culture just has given up and said, well, we can't ever really know that, what is. Because some of those postmodern philosophers have abandoned science altogether, too. They're saying, you scientists, you, you've got it all. You, you can't really know all that stuff. It's, it's ba- science is based on your own cultural perspective, and you're coming to these answers, but there's no way of knowing if it's true or not. You can't know truth. Truth is made, not found. <laughs> Be on guard in your own life of how you may have adopted some of these ways of thinking. Give yourself a fearless intellectual inventory. How do I think? Is it okay to cuss at another driver as long as nobody else is in the car. I, 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 I get caught in that every once in a while. <laughs> Boy, it's amazing how quiet I can be when my wife's in the car or my son or, you know. I'm, yeah. Oh, not you, huh? <laughs> you know, it's, our, our private way of doing things. You know, I, if you read Psalm 73, I use that when I talk about the problem of evil, which is one of our sessions here, although I'm not, not the one teaching it. Um, that is a major question for most Christians. But in Psalm 73, it's not a Davidic psalm, it's by Asaph. There's a series of psalms that begin with, I think, Psalm 73, and he's got about a series of eight or ten of them. Um, And he starts off by saying, surely God is good. He starts off with truth. He knows that that is true. He trusts that that is true. And then beginning in verse 2 through verse 12, he's shaking his finger at God. These evil and wicked people, they just prosper and they're doing all this stuff and they're getting rich and they got all the good stuff and... Verses 13 to 16, what he basically says is, I've wasted my time following your rules, and when you and the, the rich just get rewarded this way, they don't care about you, and they mock you, and they say, Where is God? Some of us think that when we're angry with God, we gotta flower up our language. Um, if God is good, if it's true that God is just. If it's true that God is omniscient, meaning he knows all, he sees all, he already knows you're angry with him. Just like Asaph, just tell him what's on your mind. Tell him what you're upset about. You know what? God can handle it. He doesn't need us to flower it all up and kind of you know, make like there's somebody else in the car and I'm not going to talk that way when some. Because now God's listening. He's always listening. 
um, numerous people in the scriptures, when they got angry, they got angered. Job challenged God to a trial. <laughs> wow. I'm not sure I'd go that far. But he got it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you who has knowledge without wisdom, let me ask you a few questions. But God already knows those things. If, if it's true of all those quality characteristics of God I just mentioned, well, we're, we're buying into the divide if we think we can hide those things. Or we can really operate in a way that we're fooling God some of the time, just like we can fool family members or whatever. Um, I'm just really encouraging you, first of all, be honest within your own mind, honest with your own heart. Start with total truth. Uh, Saving Leonardo goes through a lot of uh, literature, uh, media, so movies, um, poetry, art, sculpture, uh, architecture, and helps you see how these worldviews, where they came from, and why they have such value in the culture today. So, what time is it? 815. 8.15, good. Good time to stop. And, ask, and you can fire off questions. Yes, sir. She had written about, you said that she wrote about hard faith was mind. Yeah. If you have, the, if you have all the intellectual um, ideas and, and agreements and beliefs, but you don't have Christ reigning in your heart, then you just have a bunch of facts. Yes, you do. You do need to marry the two. That's a good point. Um, and, and, and true confessions, <laughs> as you might suspect, I'm one who, through a good part of my life, mine was a brain religion. And I've only been rediscovering these last five or six years when I ran into some personal situations that were too much for my brain religion to handle. And I don't know what to do. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a tough road, but it's been worth every, every step. So, yeah, you can't end up with just a brain religion, and that can misserve you as much as just having a heart religion. The reason she focuses on this, though, is, is because um, within the context of the culture, that's where the split has happened. They're, what they would maintain is that you, you can't have a brain religion. You can't have it. Doesn't, it's non-rational. It's irrational. You can't do that. You can only have the heart. So that's where that needs to be emphasized today. Anybody else? Nathan, I explained everything perfectly well. They, I did it again. There's no questions. Everything's crystal clear. <laughs> you and I know that's not true. So... Was it too late? You, you got after dinner drowsies, or what's, what's what's going on? Okay, I got out of the glaring light. You, I, I can actually see you now. So. No questions, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, this sort of yeah. thing is a stupid question, but was <laughs> a collection of atoms crashing together that came up with that statement? 
Well, again, it would rely upon science. And in his commentary in USA Today, I think the date of it, I put it on the second slide, was uh, January 1st, uh, 2012. Um, just uh, Google Jerry Coyne free will, and you'll find it. But he talks a little bit about some brain research and that was done with people making very simple choices, like choosing a circle or a square, or choosing black or, or white. And they were able to uh, isolate an area of the brain that, as decisions are made, that's where blood flow happens, and, and that happens repeatedly. So they were able to in- determine, at least for them, that that's the sec- portion of the brain where decisions are made. So as they began researching that further and had that area identified, and they would give you, okay, choose either the circle or the square. And seven seconds, they say, before the person pointed to one or the other, seven seconds before that area of the brain became active and the researchers could predict which one they were going to choose before they were conscious of their decision. Sound a little scary to you. <laughs> do, 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 right? Well, first of all, he, even he says in the article that it's a very crude approximation. This is very early neurological research. Secondly, these are extremely simple decisions. Yes, no, black, white, circle, square. No thought involved. No process involved. When you're driving your car and somebody, the brake lights come on in front of you, you don't have seven seconds to make a decision. You better react earlier than that, <laughs> right? So I can easily point to you where there are clear decisions we make where, okay, we don't have that kind of time to wait. Those decisions are being made in the moment. That kind of research doesn't explain that at all. It might explain some inconsequential things, but if it's something you actually have to think about or respond immediately to, this research is useless. Um, that was the second point. The first point he mentions is that, and he said this one's really pretty simple, is that you know our, our brains are nothing more than meat computers. This is chemistry. Our brains operate by the laws of physics. That's all there is. So his first piece of evidence is his materialistic assumption. I assume that matter and energy is all there is. So of course, (laughs) my decisions are just the actions of chemicals in my brain. Well, he assumes that to start with. That's that's not evidence. That's an assumption. I guess my question is, what drives somebody to say something that they really believe is just a product of chemical, I mean, his thought process is a product of well, what he what he would uh, basically how he explains it is um, your your current brain chemistry has been ordered by two things. First of all, your basic genetics and how your brain was constructed in the womb and through life, and then secondly, your experiences, which will give as he would simply say, neurological input through your ears, through your eyes, through your senses of how you perceive things, and that also will kind of reprogram the chemistry in your brain. And so based on those two, that's how your decisions are determined. It's just the laws of physics. 
Um, but as he, as he wrestles with it in this next statement, um, it's impossible to just stop doing anything. Well, why is that? Is it really? People do commit suicide because they believe this. It's not impossible. <laughs> it's not impossible to think, I don't matter. It, nothing matters. That all of this is just, they would just say that uh, even the idea that I am a person is an illusion. So I guess my question is, would he address, he even address that, is, is, do you really think this is true, what you're saying, or do you think that that's just a product of your environment and that how it In other words, your statement about not being true, do yeah. you think it's true or is it just an outcome of your I haven't had a chance to talk with Jerry Coyne himself, but he has a, a blog called Why Evolution is True, and he has about eight to 9,000 followers on that blog, and they're all uh, rabid atheists. <laughs> and shortly after this article came out, there were a lot of people who initially reacted on, on USA Today in the comments section saying, okay, this is philosophical stuff that's been disproven for centuries, and nobody accepts this anymore except some goofy biologist. Um, and so I interacted on his blog with some of his followers for a little bit. And, and of course, they get quite... One of them looked me up. <laughs> okay, I know who this Red Bowling guy is. He probably me out of this. And, and I'm dismissed because of that. But I said, wait a minute. I, I asked this directly on the blog. I said, why are you so upset with me? I can only conclude what my brain does. I'm not making any choices. Neither did you. I can't help it. Why am I a Christian? It's because of my brain chemistry. And how can you hold that against me? Nobody responded. Nobody even dared to try to respond to it. But again, sometimes just a simple question like that. Why does it bother you? I think this way. I can't control it. That, that's what you're left with. You, you can't argue with anybody, but yet he does. Because why? He thinks his beliefs are true. Well, no, you can't know that <laughs> because of what you said. So you end up in a vicious circle that you can't get out of. But they, they don't, they see it, but they, they're, they're, they're just tricky in trying to do the end run around it. Yes? Okay. So. Uh-oh, I'm getting an okay question. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And they say, well, this Christian belief is, is true. You tell me this, that every word in here is true. Mm-hmm. How do you know that, and how do you prove that to me? Mm-hmm. First thing I would say is that proof is a very slippery concept. We can prove things in mathematics just by the numbers. But anything else, we can accumulate evidence we can't prove things. Even in science, we don't prove things. We just gain evidence that this is likely to be the case or this is definitely not the case. We can prove something's wrong, but we can't necessarily prove something is right. But secondly, um, as, as a primer, I do an exercise with young people at our Mind Games conference and our, during the summer, which is in June this year. Um, I come out and I play an atheistic professor, and I just have some questions to ask you. I'm doing research on the religious beliefs of young people. 
And I get into this role of, of this antagonistic professor, and I say, why are you a Christian? And it doesn't take long to get it. They don't really know. <laughs> Can't give you a good, solid answer. But at the end, I was why am I a Christian? Why do I believe this? And if I were to give just a quick two, three-minute response to that, why am I a Christian? Well, first of all, I believe there's a God. I believe there is a God because of the evidence I see in nature. I'm a scientist. I can understand how things work. I see how it's put together. I see the complexity. I see the design. I see the intelligence required and how things are put together. I look at the universe. I look at our own solar system and, and how this earth is such a privileged place. And I, I'm willing to bet there isn't another planet like it anywhere in the universe because of a number of different factors. Just the fact that each of us has this idea that some things are right and some things are wrong and we can't get away from it. Everybody has said, that's not fair. Everybody has said, you promised. We have expectations of how things ought to be. And where does that idea come from? We're always saying, my, my way is better than your way. Well, there must be some standard out there that, that we're always comparing to. And where would that come from? It doesn't come from me. It's coming from outside of ourselves. So I believe there is a God. Has this God ever spoken to us? And we're going to address that later on. Well, yeah, I think God has spoken to us through the scriptures. Why do I think they're reliable? Well, Talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Old Testament copies and the Masoretic text that a thousand years earlier, Dead Sea Scrolls, and they match. The copying was good. We have thousands of copies of Greek New Testament manuscripts, some of them going back to within decades after the time of Christ from the apostles when they were written. And as we look at all these documents, we're able to compare and contrast, and we, we practically can tell you what the original letter looked like, how it was spelled, what... We know, we, know what, we know what's there. So I can trust that this, what was written, is what was original. What I have today is, is, represents what was originally written. And then the question is, like I said, well, is it true? Well, when you talk about Jesus, um, there were lots of people around. He wasn't a nobody. Um, almost every scholar today will admit, yeah, Jesus was a person, he lived. Nobody questions whether Jesus existed anymore except a few atheists out there. But the actual scholars, yeah, Jesus was real. Big question is the resurrection. That's what the Gospels focus on. That's what they all end with. That was the key. Even Paul says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we've got nothing. But what did he point to? He pointed, he, was, he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to 500 at one time. And his implication was, you can go talk to these folks. It was open knowledge. The history mattered. And right after it was happening, Paul was pointing to people who experienced the history and said, you go talk to them. And all but one of the 11 remaining apostles died a martyr's death. The only one was John who didn't, who died a natural death. And as some will say, um, lots of people have died for something that wasn't true because they thought it was true. But the 11 disciples, they were all claiming, I saw that man. I spoke to him. He spoke to me. I had breakfast with him on the Sea of the Galilee shore. Um, they weren't just believing something they couldn't know was true or false. They believed it. And they went to their death because they believed it. The Romans were completely perplexed. Why these Christians keep allowing themselves to be tortured and put to death? All I want them to do is worship the emperor, but they won't do it because they say Jesus is the only God. They didn't get it. Every other people they conquered was willing to do that, and these Christians were just weird. (laughs) 
So you go back to those earliest days, and, and the history fits. It matches. We have good evidence to say, historical evidence, that this is real. Jesus claimed to be God on numerous occasions. He forgave sins. He controlled nature. Um, numerous things that he didn't said throughout his ministry directly claimed in the Jewish context that I'm God. And they knew it. He claimed it, and then he proved it. If Jesus, if the tomb wasn't empty, and Jesus was still in it, those Jewish leaders had something to pull out of the, out of the rocks when all those disciples started preaching Jesus' resurrection. Nobody did that. Why? Because the tomb was empty. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's the second point. Yeah, I believe there is a God. I believe the Bible is the word of God. And I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, based upon what I learned in the scriptures. And beyond that, I had the testimony of my own life. Um, as a child, and in other contexts, I still am a very child, uh, shy, um, retiring, in the background kind of person. I once told my initial Bible study group when I accepted Christ in college that um, I had a, a friend who led it, and he was going off doing fraternity talks, and I, and I was scared just putting up the notices on the bulletin boards, you know. And, and I once told him I could never get up in front of a group of people and even give my testimony. I am that scared. And what has God done with this man? I've been on all continents. I have debated. I have lectured in front of raucous crowds, in front of friendly crowds, and I've done it for 40 years. That is the work of God in my life because that's not me. (laughs) That's not who I am. So God exists. The Bible is real. Jesus is the Christ, and I have the testimony of my own life. That's why I think Christianity is true. In the, in the brief, <laughs> we put it up. It's good stuff, man. Well, hey, that's all we have time for tonight. Um, hey, next week, he touched on some of the stuff we're going to be covering next week, uh, which is the reliability of Scripture. So, I mean, people are obviously bringing up all kinds of objections to, hey, your Bible's antiquated. You know, why do you believe that? And we're going to we're really going to dive into. Uh, the reality that scripture actually is trustworthy and we're going to be doing that next week. Um, so I'd love to see you guys back next week. And if you got any questions or uh, want to, you know, interact, uh, Ray and myself will be here for a little bit. Otherwise you'll have a great night.